from the home of Hashtag MTAS, the movie talk on Sundays, comes Film File, the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Filmfile UK. And here we are back with episode two of The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And we've got more news, reviews and bits and pieces from around the World Wide Web to entertain you for the next ooh, 50 minutes to an hour or so. We'll see how it goes. Uh, a bit of housekeeping first. Thank you to all those who, uh, who listened last time. Andy, I do believe we're now on iTunes. iTunes has been a nightmare to get fed through. So I've managed to piggyback the old feed from the old podcast that I used to do with a few of the guys. So if you just do a search on iTunes for Film File, you will find us. Go into the iTunes tracker list. It's just Film File. Can't miss it. And we're on Spotify as well. We're on Spotify. A lot easier to find on there. Again, just put Film File in and we're the only one there. Very easy to spot. The logo is quite distinctive. Check that out. And also, we're on SoundCloud, um, which is where most of them are getting uploaded to and streamed to initially. Fantastic. What we'd like you to do is tell your friends, tell your auntie, your uncle, your grandma, your granddad, stop people in the street. Tell your cats and dogs. I've heard that cats and dogs love my voice. Yes, yeah, so my cat is now, we, as we've, we're recording this at my house, my cat is desperately trying to get into the house, drawn uniquely and strangely and mystifyingly to Andy's voice. Uh, we don't know why. But... If you can, leave us a review on iTunes. It's good for us. Hopefully, we'll get some sponsorship. We've got some interesting ideas what we'd like to do with the show further down the line. But today, we've been joined by a guest, and we'd like to introduce yourself, dear guest. Oh, I'm terrible at introductions. I'll oh, just tell who you are. I'm just, I'm Scott. I am uh, Andy's friend, partner. <laughs> Hello. Can I say partner? <laughs> I've known Andy a long time, and this is a side to him that... Yeah, he's going to be interesting. Second episode in, I've just been out of <laughs> It had to come out somehow. Um, I, I work with Andy, I've known him many, a few, quite a few years. And he was one of my uh, partners on the previous podcasts, which you can find the remnants of on, if you search for it on iTunes. <laughs> it's all come strangely full circle. So as we do, uh, we've got the uh, housekeeping our way. As we do, we'd like to talk about stuff that we've seen on the web uh, that's interesting to us and other film freaks along the lines. Andy, what have we got? Well, let's start small, shall we? Let's start with the Bond 25 title. Fantastic. No Time to Die. Thoughts on the title? I think it's just, I think it's a, it's a cool Bond title. I think it does what a Bond title needs to do. I think it's interesting to maybe, and I'm reading between the lines on this, and there may be even no lines to read between, but I do think it's got that feel of a, of a, of a classic Fleming uh, title. But I also think it might be an indication that this is Daniel Craig's last movie uh, and what they're going to do with it after this. Who knows? Yeah, that's fair. Um, my favourite Bond titles are always the ones that sound like you probably use them in everyday parlance, but you just don't. <laughs> I can't Diamonds are forever. Like, it's like you... Oh, live, let die. <laughs> you put oh, about... right in the Thunderball. <laughs> <laughs> you put like five or six uh, cool-sounding spy words into a blender and then it, it pops out a little... So you go catchphrase and you go, that's a one time. I know there's a little uh, meme going round at the moment, which is uh, you use your month of birth and your date of birth to work out what your Bond title is. And mine ended up like 
being tomorrow never goldfingers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I, think, I, I think that's also a means of when this film will actually come out, because it's had a, 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 a checkered history already into production. It's lost, lost Danny Boyle as its director. The, uh, Craig got injured. Um, it's been a bit all over the show. I like the director they've got, because I thought uh, the first series of uh, A True Detective was, was absolutely astounding, and I thought it was beautiful-looking. Uh, cinematic TV series. Uh, Carrie Fujinawa? Yeah, you know and what my pronunciations are. Apologies, Carrie. <laughs> I know you're a big listener and, and you'll be stopping production to listen to the Film File episode two. But um, I'm a big fan of his work. I think interesting choice. I, I thought Danny Ball was an interesting choice. Uh, one of the things that I, I've been thinking about uh, uh, with the announcement of the, of the new Bond film is the uh, story that ran a couple of weeks ago. I think it was the Daily Mail ran it. So it must be true. Uh, it got picked up, and especially in the States, got picked up about this idea of a female 007 based on the fact that uh, the fantastic writer of Fleabag, which is one of the best series ever, uh, has, has come in to, to punch up the script. Uh, and it made me think about who they're going to choose, because the big question will always be, now Craig's going to say, this is it, who they're going to pick as the next Bond. Uh, and of course, all the, all the arguments will come out, is it going to be a female Bond, which I don't think will happen. Will it be a, a diverse cast? Will it have a diverse actor? And, and, I, and I was playing this conversation out in my head a little bit because uh, everyone's saying, well, Idris Elba was, would be a perfect... Uh, and, I, and, I, and I kind of felt myself falling into this, these, these two grounds of going, yes, it would be interesting to see somebody else play Bond, um, but do you remain true to, to what Fleming created? And, I, and I, have to, I came down on the fact that I think you've got to tr- stay true to who Fleming created. And... Uh, and, um, and I equate that you know, with you wouldn't want Daniel Craig playing Black Panther. Yeah, I can see that. Um, thing with the Bond thing, I mean, I know when there was the announcement that um, what's her name is going to be 007. Yeah, um, and everyone, which is perfectly within keeping that if everyone if, went crazy that a female is 007. How can a female be James Bond? Was that well? She's not. She's no. double, got the agent 007 status because he's currently retired. Yes, uh, which he did at the end of Spectre, folks. Spoiler: He walked away at the end of Spectre, drove yeah. away in fact. And I've got no qualms with the being another 007 where they can branch off and yeah. do whatever they want with. But yeah, I, I agree that the James Bond should be the James Bond the books. I think Edris Elba would be a marvellous addition and marvellous on screen and he'd be front and centre throughout. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I mean, he's probably the only good thing that there was in the Dark Tower film. Yes, yeah. He's (laughs) he's, he's got, uh, you know, in Hobbs and Shaw, he's he's, he's so charismatic and when you're on screen with with the two leads of, of that kind of Heavy, big style. He, he holds his own. I, I think he would. He would be an interesting. But would he be James Bond? I, uh, it's, it's an interesting fact. And you, you do find yourself going down these sort of alleyways of having to sort of justify it as well. Why a black actor can't play uh, James Bond? And and I have to keep coming back to that's not how Fleming envisaged the character. I have no problems with recasting and and, and diversifying uh, uh, other characters in other films. Perry White in, in yeah. Superman. Yeah. As Larry Fitchburn. So if Craig was to was definitely is definitely gonna leave, because this is the last of his contracted ones, unless he renews his contract, this is his last film. Mm. Anyone who you'd throw into the mix? Uh yeah, instantly I'd say Michael Fassbender. Oh, interesting. Ooh, I, like I think he's got that style. And then what what convinces me is in uh X-Men First Class when he's uh right at the beginning and he it's set in the sixties, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has that Connery esque. He's got the hat on, 
and like like Con- Conry used to wear in the very first few. And I thought I thought Fassbender would be. Uh, I don't know how old he is now. I don't know if he's coming up to his sort of forties. Which seems about the right age for Bond. He's yeah. got to be somebody. I'd, I'd hate to see Tom Holland pick it up, you know. And, <laughs> like and James Bond Junior. Yeah, James Bond Junior. Yeah, yeah. Where we go? Subject for another another podcast <laughs> okay. where we do cult TV cartoons that you've forgotten. But yeah, I, I think fastbender has got. I don't that. think me or Scott have ever forgotten any of the cult <laughs> cartoons. <laughs> Mister T, anybody? Um, but I think I think uh, I think fastbender has got that style. He's, he he looks like Bond. Uh, what's the film he did with for Steven Sp- uh, Soderbergh? Um, with oh, the, when he played um, the villain in it, yeah, oh. and it was it was a spy movie. I can't. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. We'll come back to it. Ewan McGregor was in it. Um, I think he's. I think he's got that. Um, people mentioned the guy out of Legion a few times. Oh, Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens, but he's just a little bit soft to me. I, he's a great actor, but he, he tends to play like jittery characters yeah, he's got that twitchy I, I, edge I can't quite see a jittery Bond he doesn't no. have a tr- like the voice he gives to the Beast <laughs> in Beauty and the Beast is weirdly charming though yeah. Yeah. Like, I could see him <laughs> maybe fl- flicking a switch well, he is weirdly charming anyway yeah, oh yeah, yeah of course I've well, been like, outed again <laughs> uh, and, and now he's getting a little bit older uh, and he's starting to show a little bit of wear and tear in a, in a good way Jamie Bell is an interesting choice hmm. he got muted a few years back but I thought he was too young. But now, you know, he's uh, he's, he's got to be what, his early 30s. It's tough because similar to like, say, when the Doctor's being cast in Doctor Who, you always go to people who seem so obviously like, yeah, they're next. Like Henry Cavill looks like he probably could play a Bond. But I quite like the slightly left of centre picks. Like, As Daniel I, Craig was. That's what I mean, great. yeah. I would not have gone near him, but even just because he's blonde. But like... At the time, you wouldn't have, would you? And then yeah. suddenly, it's not an ish. Well, a lot of yeah. people, a lot of people made it an ish. Yes, and, <laughs> and, and, and the blonde, not Bond website is still going. Oh, is it? Are they still arguing? Oh, they st- <laughs> they still want to rip everything apart, and they're the, they're not willing to accept that it's been a successful franchise. It's been a, this is the time, apart from the the, the Connery era, and uh, then I, I've collected collected these movies. I think he's he's, he's been a fantastic Bond, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, and that's how. April next year, I believe. Mm. Normally, the Bond films get dropped in late October, early November. Yeah, usually a Christmas release. Uh, so aren't it's going to be interesting. But with the absence of like a huge heavy hitter Marvel film next year, yeah, mm. it leaves that window open because the Marvel films next year, as we know, are a bit more low radar, yeah. newer characters. Yeah. Like they're, they're not they're not anticipating the billion sellers. But then again, pretty much everything, the galaxy. everything that they throw out is a billion at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that gives a nice early summer slot. To throw a Bond film into. Interesting. So from Bond to uh, Matrix. Yes. Now this has come out left uh, S- a left hitter. Scott brought this to my attention because um, he was following the news when he should have been working the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Me never. <laughs> um, well, it's just another part of the Reeves Renaissance, isn't it? Where we we, we dredge up his back catalogue and <laughs> I, I can't wait to my own private Idaho too. <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm Who saw that coming? <laughs> I'm kind of psyched. Yeah, I mean, uh, w- there's been the rumours of like a, a spin-off for the Matrix franchise. And a reboot. A, 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 re- a reinvigorating of it, drawing from, the, not completely retelling the story, but telling side stories or something. And it's just been bandied around for the past year. Nothing's been finalised until literally over the past few days and all the casting is getting announced and Lana Wachowski is back to direct. Yeah. Reeves and Moss are both back. Now, 
I think we're beyond spoiler alerts when it comes to the Matrix films. I mean, you know, Neo died at the end of what? the third film. However, <laughs> In a godlike way. However, he died by becoming part of the computer system that yeah. ran the Matrix. So, anyway... Anyone... Actually, just want to stop you there. A thousand points to you, Andy, for remembering what happens in the other two. Oh, I love them. Do you? Oh, yes, I'm, I know. I saw them with you and I... I'm, 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 I'm one of those people who, like, I can understand why people felt more and more alienated, but because I, I just embraced the fact that it was all anime philosophies being brought into yeah. live action entertainment, and I loved them. And I've, I've watched them multiple times since, and, yeah, I, I'm well up for the sequel to them. Loads of people have been speculating online saying, you know, well, where can they go story-wise? Because now that everyone knows that they're in Matrix, what, what's going to happen? Anyone who ever dabbled with the game um, Matrix Online yeah. knows exactly where they can go with the storylines because that had eight seasons, I think, of great stories set after um, the events of it. Put it this way, you know, everyone said, like, oh, once everyone knows what, like, that they're in the Matrix, surely everyone's going to be a superhero. Well, not everyone can tap into that because you've got to leave the Matrix in order to understand the real world to get back into the Matrix and then be able to override it. Because you need to be reprogrammed outside. I think I'm in the Matrix right now. <laughs> <laughs> so not everyone within the Matrix, even though they've been told that they are in the Matrix, will be a superhero. Those that want to leave the Matrix get to leave. But let's be honest, would you want to live in squalor and poverty, like eating gruel, outside the Matrix, or be happy oh, to... It? <laughs> it, it, it was touched upon in the first film, like, you know, the juicy steak. I know this isn't real. Mm. I know that this is just digital signals, but... Hashtag, are we living in the Matrix? I would stay in the Matrix, personally. I wouldn't want to even leave, even knowing that if I leave, I'd be able to get, re- like, little uploads into my brain to go back in and be even better than what I am. But, you know, I'm, I'm ace as it is. We are on Twitter, if you want to debate this issue. <laughs> we are available for debate. But interesting, because you're right, I mean, we've got, we've got the new Bill and Ted... Uh, a film coming out, which I'm, I, I, I love the Bill and Ted films. And I even, you know, people decry the second one, but it's as fresh as, as oh, you yeah, can imagine. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very fresh film. So, uh, and, and Keanu Reeves just deserves all the plaudits and get for being the nicest guy, apparently. In Genuinely. Yeah, Genuinely yeah. nice guy. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to John Wick 4. I'll hope that they also do a speed three and uh, bring him back to it and have it on segways. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Dracula two. <laughs> Maybe well, that's the point. That <laughs> uh, before we get to the really big news, let's just briefly touch on the sequel to Coming of, Coming to America, which is called Coming to America. I see what they did there. Oh, must have took them ages to come up with that. About three minutes. Eddie Murphy's returning to the big screen because what else has he got to do these days? As Prince he's not even voicing Donkey right now, so no. he's, uh, he's <laughs> that's five minutes. Eddie got a year gone. Which apparently the storyline is that he's set to become king at last. However, he fa- he finds word gets word that he's got a son in America that he didn't know about, and so uh, as his father James Earl Jones, like on his deathbed, says, "You must go over there and see your son and bring him into the family." That was a poor impression. <laughs> I never knew that James Earl Jones was Welsh. <laughs> there we go. He clearly trotted. And so he goes off to find his son. And no doubt, hilarity ensues. Uh, pretty much the whole of the original cast are back. The big question with this is, uh, did, did, did anyone actually really ask for a sequel to... Well, uh, it's a little bit like, it runs off the back of talking about The Matrix, and to some extent, Bill and Ted. There are a lot of sequels that studios must think are great ideas. But do we actually want them? Um, you know, 20 years, however long it's been since, uh, if not longer, 30 years since uh, they're coming to America. 
Eddie Murphy's not, not a, a no. household name. No. Um, especially to a younger generation. And, and you guys know more than I do, sat in a, um, a cinema every day, seeing who comes through your door. I, it, it does warrant that there is a, always a sense with some of these sequels that do come out of nowhere. Is it is it a baby boomer generation executive who's gone, I really love that movie and we'll yeah. see a sequel to it, rather than general public going, I want to see a sequel to it. How long is too long, though? To revisit. Well, we'll know when coming to America too. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be there. I mean, the, the, the latest news on it is the casting of a Tracy Morgan. Yeah. Right. Um, in it. And that's the point at which I was like, you know what? I don't want this film. I've, I've got no time for him at all. I don't mind. I, I was a big 30 Rock fan. Um, so I'm interested to see. I've never seen, I've never seen him really do much else on the back end of 30 Rock. What, what year was coming to America again? It was a 90s then. film, wasn't it? But we're talking... 20 plus years now, like culture's changed. Yeah, like, and, and, and generationally, um, there's there's an, an audience who may have seen it on TV or seen mm-hmm. it on, uh, on on a streaming service. Do you remember the weird uproar when Friends was uploaded to Netflix? And a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the new new generation watching it for the first time were criticising how un, unwoke it was. And it was like, well, yeah, it started in the mid-90s. Yeah. It? <laughs> it's a comedy series about wit- rich white folks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously it's not going to be... didn't hang around with any ethnics. To, to today's standards of, like, you know, correctness. So surely that's an idea you'd rather revisit in a renewed cultural context than just go back to it and have it... I can't see it working at yeah. all. Yeah. Let us know what are the interesting sequels that we don't want. <laughs> you can reach us on Twitter. Twitter's any uh, any uh, uh, um, any sequels that you, we don't want to see anymore. Yeah. I'll start it off with Trading Places Two. <laughs> <laughs> At Filmfile UK is the Twitter handle. If you want to go send us some feedback and some suggestions, and uh, if we get some, uh, we'll pick out some of the best. Shouldn't list show. two relisted. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and moving on. I think a part of my soul just withered and died at that statement. So the pill won it. Okay, so um, the big news this week. Which came out of nowhere. And I'm still sort of reeling from it because it doesn't feel like it's a it's a legit it's it's almost like a Trumpism. You know, it's it's something that, you know, let's buy a Greenland type story. <laughs> Is there any basis in this? And and apparently it's um no one saw this coming. Marvel and Sony, well, Disney and Sony have had a huge disagreement over the character of Spider-Man. Disney were reportedly wanting 50% of the takings on future films, and they've offered to put 50% of the budget into it in order to try to justify it. And Sony have basically turned around and gone, yeah, right, this is our character that we own that Marvel sold to us ages ago. Why should we give you half the money? And no longer is go- is he going to be part of the... They've episode. literally taken their bat and ball home. Yes. Scott, your thoughts on this? It's tough because it, you can see both sides, can't you? Because th- from Disney's perspective, yeah, from it, Sony are fronting the money, but that Disney are outright producing it, letting Kevin Feige spend all his time and whatever on it when he could be making the new X-Men and which Disney profit all of it. But by the same token, Sony are sort of, slow losing Spider-Man through the back door and going, that's not okay. Yeah. Um, the only people who are going to lose out are, are us, the viewers and the fans, really. Yeah. Uh, I, I did, did see, a, uh, I think it was on bleedingcool.com, about, you know, a welcome back to the lousy Spider-Man movies. But, you know, 
out of the out of the five that they produced, one of them is still one of the best superhero movies ever, and and is Spider Man Two. Yeah, um, and that was guided through by Sony. I, I'm hoping that some it's still early days. There still could be a resolution. I don't know if there will be. Of course not. It's, it's pure speculation. It would be nicer that they can resolve it because, as I say, ultimately we lose out. We want Spider Man to be part of the Marvel universe as fans uh, and as moviegoers and what we've been led to believe. The quality that that um, the Marvel Studios have brought to, and I, I don't, and I and I don't, I've not got the hate on the Andrew Garfield series at all that a lot of people have. I think the first film was was quite a, a, an interesting film, Amazing Spider-Man Two. I I feel that the first Amazing Spider-Man film is a better origin film than Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man film. Agreed. Agreed. Controversially, agreed. yes, hashtag controversial. <laughs> uh, but I think there's a lot to it, and uh, and and my thoughts changed on it. I, I saw uh, something on YouTube about it that it was more of an evolution of someone who wants to be a hero than becoming a hero straight away that that the, the Raimi film did and. Uh, that sort of realistic tone that they brought to it, uh, I, I've got a real soft spot for it. But you know, Spider Man Two is, is is up there with I think Superman as being one of the the Godfathers of, of the superhero genre. Um, the the two current Spider Man films that are running, I think Tom Holland is the perfect Spider Man, but I, I think it lacks the gravitas that that Spider Man, Sam Raimi film, and, and certainly Spider Man Two brought to it that. That it had, it meant something, and I don't think these two have. They felt frivolous. Yeah, it's just the point we're at with the uh, with the second film. It just leads itself to what happens next, mm. and then Sony definitely can't tackle it because you'll spend the whole time going, "Where are all these allies is accumulated that we're not referencing?" And then the MCU obviously can't attack it because they've lost him. So you're almost forced to quietly soft reboot over to the side, and it's the timing I don't like the most. But I've got a free pitch for Sony. Okay. Okay. Because uh, um, we know that Sony listen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the Spider-Verse film, which is proof Fox can make a good Spider-Man film. Sony. Sony. Uh, so, sorry. Uh, that weird studio dysplasia. Um, <laughs> uh, Sony can make a good Spider-Man film. Live action version. Get Tobey Maguire back. Get Andrew Garfield back. Get Tom Holland in. Never reference uh, universes. Have them play off each other. And a Miles Morales. Donald Glover, anyone. And uh, everyone will be too busy uh, fangasming. <laughs> yeah. Distracted. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that, I mean, that would also work in the storyline's favour in that, you know, it gets out of this, like, you know, Peter Parker's identity has just been revealed to the world aspect. Hang on, there's Spider-Man, there's Peter Parker. And it, using a multiverse aspect would be a way that they could kind of soft reboot it yeah, and move idea. it out of the MCU yeah. and into its own universe. I mean, you say about, like, you know, they wouldn't be able to draw upon, like, um, all the friends that he's made. How many did you draw on him Far From Home? Yeah, I, I mean... It's, uh, the... And it's the same with any of the standard MCU characters. Whenever they've got the solo outing, very rarely do they actually, um, you know, you're, you're always wonders like, so why didn't they just call on Thor? Why, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why, yeah. why are the rest of the Avengers not helping here? Why, why, are this, why is this person on their own? So I don't think that's actually an issue... Because all that we had in Far From Home to link, to link us to the MCU was in whining about like Mr. Stark yeah. every five minutes and um, Nick Fury. Um, I've got two words of advice. And I know I know they've signed a deal with somebody and I don't know who it is. I can't remember off the top of my head. 
Miller and Lord, put Miller and Lord in, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, in, in front of the Spider-Man uh, And uh, have franchise. confidence in them. Don't do what Disney did with Star Wars. I think our, great, <laughs> our, our greatest fear, though, I feel, is this This will be a green light for Sony to go, well, we can put him in the Venom film and yes. run yeah. away with Mobius. I don't think Tom Holland's Spider-Man fits with no. the direction that Venom's taken. I and think. news on that, but actually, we uh, is Andy Serkis has signed on to direct yeah. the, which is interesting, isn't which it? is an interesting choice, and and you might feel that that's definitely lead actor pushing in that direction mm. for that one. On, on the positive side, with the if the, if they don't resolve all these de- details and they don't come with a seventy thirty in the end or something like that, and he's left the MCU, on a personal level, I'm happier. Because that will mean that they won't have, he won't be able to use an iron spider suit, yeah. which is relying on the tech far too much. I mean, in, what I've always loved about the character of Spider Man is that when he needs more strength, he finds it from within himself with his own powers and his own motivations. It's not just his his suit goes. Which they did at the end of Homecoming. Enhancing power. Yeah. Me? Yeah. Um, you know, entering kill mode, which has been very controversial from the end game scene. It's like kill mode doesn't mean that he's killed everyone. It just yeah. it's just the overpower mode, um, but. The suit does too much for him. Yes. I want his powers to do things. If he's in the dark, I don't want his night vision to come on. We finally got to see it in Far From Home where he started to use his spider sense, although they were calling it the PT tingle. I want to see his powers evolve without the need for an Iron Man suit. I don't want him to be a second-rate Iron Man because that's what Dan Slott did with him in the comics in recent years. And thankfully, Slott's moved on to other things. More on that later. (laughs) Uh, final news. Final news. Scorsese is the Irishman. Who's excited? Very much so. I saw the trailer for it when they premiered that. It felt like uh, a Scorsese film that we've not seen since Casino. It felt it felt comfortable, confident. He is De Niro's best director. They work together very well. Uh, I mean, he's he's uh, they solidified their careers together. Um, both of them done their best work together. Great to see them back. Uh, it looked like uh, it looked like everything I like about a Scorsese film when he's in that particular genre. Um, I, I've not been a big fan of some of the things that Scorsese's done over the last few years. Uh, I know he's moving on as a filmmaker. That's interesting. But I'm, I'm just glad to see him back in territory. And it's interestingly enough, and I know you're going to pick up on this, it's gone straight to Netflix. Yeah. However. it's a, Well, it's a Netflix production. Um, so as always, it'll be going to the service. However, it's such a production and such great names in there. Loads of prestige around it. Obviously, they're going to do the usual like limited release so they can get nominations for Oscars. There's a lot of rumblings going on that it's going to be more than just a limited release. It won't be like a, a three-month... Most cinemas ask that there's a three-month window before it goes onto home media because they want to be able to get like at least 12 weeks if it sells well and keep it running. So whenever they've done these like small, like straight to DVD or straight to streaming service releases, they've just sought out a few small independent cinemas just to get a two week run done. You can now get nominated. There's rumblings that they're looking for a longer one. So maybe four week release and they're in talks with the smaller chains. Apparently AMC in the US are in talks and uh, they're in talks with chains in the UK and also in Europe to release it for the t- limited run through them. Now, I can't confirm or deny um, the information, but I can tell you that there's definitely been communications going to cinemas asking to test to see if they can play the Netflix Netflix content, that they need to have the right frame rate 
and there's little test packages being sent out. There's email communications going backwards and forwards. Whether this is for the Irishman, no one knows. But I can confirm that those communications are going going out at the moment that mm. Netflix is trying to get into cinemas. It, and, and, you know, and it's as much as I, as, as Netflix has changed how we all view uh, and how we uh, how we expect new releases, and of course how new releases have changed. Uh, the very nature of, uh, um, of of independent cinema is moving away from independent cinemas and moving straight to Netflix. A film like The Irishman, 10, 15 years ago, would have been a, a, a big release with with the weight of having Scorsese on, on as a director alone would have given it a, a, a box office credence. Um, I find it bizarre that this film couldn't have been made for for a major studio for a cinema release. But if it's the way we get to see it, I would certainly like to see it in the cinema before being able to watch it on Netflix. I, mean, I can kind of understand they want to go a bit bigger with this release because on the back of Roma last year, and there was all the like hoo ha when that was like in the Oscars and like a prime candidate for like major awards. Like, I mean, Spielberg was campaigning like yeah, this yeah. shouldn't be there because it's a TV movie. It wasn't, it wasn't no, no, it wasn't. Did you see Roma? Uh, I never got round to it, no, but I, I don't agree with Spielberg. I think it's one foot in the past, sort of scared of change, sort of. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Shouting at the cloud, sort of comment, isn't it? But it, it feels <laughs> that like Netflix are now trying to go, well, okay, when we've got something which is like more worthy, can we manage to get a more wider release? It's a prestigious The major stuff. chains will still turn it down because if it's only going to be four weeks, they don't want it, yeah. they won't touch it. But it gives the smaller chains a chance to go. You know what? We've got exclusives on something. Yeah. And it's it's an exciting time if you if you work within a smaller chain. <laughs> it's a very exciting time. Well, it's you know it's like all media. It's becoming more niche and fragmented. So it's about exploring those rivers, isn't it? And getting the best out of your product. So if that can that's got the best of both worlds there, hasn't it? Cause everyone sees it mainstream wise on Netflix. Your more film goers, purists will go to the independent chains. Everyone wins every step of the way. And it should be nominated for... It's just as valid a piece of art, good or bad. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't get the, just because someone chucks it up on a big screen, it's more valid than a small screen. No. I never have. It's a, a beast of a, a thousand nations. The, the, the same it? effort went into the making yeah. of the film, yeah. regardless and, of what the distribution was. Yeah. So, and, you know, Roma is the great example. That is one of the most luscious-looking films of like that I've seen and a cinematic decade. director it's a beautiful film beautiful story it deserved every plaudit that it got yeah. and deserved to be seen and I think uh, the problem we've got I mean our love of, of of a specific genres has to some extent squeezed out a lot of the smaller films mm. films that uh, you know we're, we're an ever-changing audience and uh, and films like the Scorsese film which as I said earlier would have would have had that prestige on the cinema are finding an audience where people can stay at home and watch it and and not see it in a in a cinema right or wrong that's just the way that it's gone um but it it's doesn't doesn't make it less worthy i'm just going to have one final i know we said we're going to move on but um i've just noticed that that uh, the joker film is coming out with a hard r rating in the us so i don't know what what does that mean over here 18 possibly 18 it could get a 15 a strong 15 but it's likely to be an 18 Thoughts on this? It's it's um, it's getting a lot of interesting feedback. Pass this over to our DC experts. Uh, <laughs> Quiet Phoenix playing a version of the DC character, the Joker. Uh, not the Joker, not a Joker, a version of the Joker. Uh, I think we said off air, a little bit like an Elsewhere, if, uh, Elseworlds 
sort of variational take on it. So it's not fitting within the DC universe, yeah. whatever that means now. <laughs> yeah. um, Robert De Niro is part of it. I think Scorsese is involved in it. Mm. Todd Phillips is directing. Um, the trailer looked very, very gritty. Had a an almost sort of uh, Goodfellas Main Streets sort of vibe coming off of it. But it looks like it's it's going for um, you know the full impact of being a very, very dark story. It's uh, it's got me very conflicted because. He's not a small character, is he? He's, he's, he's in every house. Everyone knows Heath Ledger and everyone's got their own preconceived notions of how it should be done. So obviously making a film of it is a no-brainer. But the way they've done it is so left field. But that's what kind of excites me. If you were a studio sitting on that property, why on earth would you go in this direction? Unless yeah. you've got a pitch that was so, my God, I have to do this. Um, so I think... It's going to be very reminiscent of like Scorsese's so like Mean Streets meets Taxi Driver. Meets King of Comedy. King of Comedy. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that great show actually, yeah. <clears throat> and just push it through that end and obviously that might upset a few fanboys here and there who want to see him fall in some chemicals and Batman come and punch him and whatever. But if you're going to explore him in isolation, because he is just an agent of chaos who works sort of opposed to Batman, if you have to sort of dissect him, you want to do it in an else world, like take him out of the comics and put him somewhere in a different genre that will interest you. And I think they've picked the most fascinating one for that in a weird way. They're already. <laughs> so, you know, actually, you've sold me. Yeah. You've sold me in a way that, that I hadn't been sold on it before, which is, which is as you just said, is if this is such a good pitch, then why not do this film? Yeah. Um, you know, we've got that amount of talent and... Um, I've always thought with Todd Phillips, he, he, he was almost too, especially with the, the, the Hangover series, he was too cinematic mm. for comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think comedy, for me, always feels though it's, it should be, it should have a a more realistic look. And, and the Hangover films, as they progressed and he became more confident as a filmmaker, I think, they became very, very cinematic. And uh, uh, and I think he's an interesting, an interesting choice of director for this. Um, and if you get somebody... Likes Gassese interested in in being a, having a Absolutely, producer title yeah. on it and and therefore getting De Niro in it. There must be something within this film, and the, the reviews or the word on it has been very very positive. But I don't think you go and see it as a as a DC character. No, I think you see it in no. its own light. As of, the joke has always been one of these characters that there's never been one one origin for him. There's been half a dozen, uh, you know, the, the the Michael Keaton version had him as a very, very different Joker. You know, the, the Jack Napier character, that's never been canon. Uh, there's been various different variations within within the series. The uh, uh, the way that they did it in, in Dark Knight, that they had, you could have had multiple origins. As yeah. <laughs> Again, is that's how the Joker should be. You could have another Joker in a Batman film with a completely different origin and it wouldn't feel out of place. I'm hoping it opens some doors in terms of, because there's a lot of uncertainty with the universe, which is why I think a lot of people are uneasy about a different Joker film just being chucked out there in isolation. But like, if this is a hit, it makes studios go, not everything has to be in universe reference X, Y, and Z and sell Z. Just take a character, because they're all really incredibly malleable and adaptable, which is why they're all thriving so much and rebooted so often. It it just opens so many new doors where we could we could get that 30s Batman noirish take. We could mm. people can experiment a bit and just 
from an Elseworlds label or just go, this is onto itself. And yep. we could get some cooler stuff. I, that's I, the route that DC I should I love take. the idea of an, a, like, an Elseworlds kind of approach for DC because, let's be honest, trying to world build and bring them all together, they're always going to get compared to Marvel. Mm. And if they don't do the bank that Marvel does, they'll get criticised, as they have done. They will then panic and start make bad decisions, and they'll meddle with the creative like stylings of it. I mean, as much as Zack Snyder, I didn't appreciate what he was doing um, with Man of Steel. I do think it's a shame that the studio lost faith in him straight after Man of Steel and started yeah. pressuring him to do different things because you can see how he, he probably did have a vision. He probably had a great like you know five or six film vision to lead up to a finale. But it got all condensed. Batman was quickly hurriedly put into yeah. it, etc. Because the studio panicked. An Elseworlds kind of approach means that they don't have to panic because every film's its own film. Yes. Uh, you don't have to worry about linking it to that. And now you've got to build that story. It's like no, that story's its own thing. If that didn't work, that's fine because the next one's its own thing. DC should just go for that. Yeah. And then absolutely. if they want to fold them all together, do a crisis movie and bring them all yeah. to the same yeah, I mean, this is all sorts of ways. <laughs> but then you don't have to worry about how Matt Reeves' Batman affects Shazam, which affects yeah. Aquaman, which affects just... Yeah, and then you, you create they all the things in their own right. Yeah, you just, you just go... Take each movie as it comes, like we used to do. Yeah, Marvel. <laughs> Marvel the days. Eh? <laughs> Marvel have, have, have created something that's unique. Let that be Marvel's. Uh, DC should just do something that's unique for them, mm. and they could bring a Scorsese. They could bring uh, a different director in that doesn't feel. I mean, Marvel has very much a house style with how their films look. They're very colourful, very bright looking films. Fantastic. Uh, we're living in a golden age where these films can happen, but. You know, Richard Donner's uh, Superman is still uh, at the highest level for me. Exactly. Um, Dark Knight for myself. It didn't. It didn't need a connected universe to make it yeah. a fantastic film. Uh, Steel it, is mine. No. <laughs> yeah. Catwoman. Again, contact Andy via Twitter. But if you can't beat Marvel as a collective, so beat them individually yes. by yes. just producing good films about your great characters. Yeah. And use the whole pantheon of characters. Stop relying on Batman all the time. Mm. Yeah. Let's let's see Plastic Man on the screen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it who I suggested for Plastic Man the other day? Oh, it was, I was saying, if Joel Schumacher had to... <laughs> it had to direct, like, a DC film again, which would you choose? Plastic Man. Okay. <laughs> let's move on now to our feature review. Um, new Quentin Tarantino film out in the cinemas right now, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. That was the best acting I've ever seen. Welcome to our community. Charlie's going to dig you. I can all change. I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna be very clear. I've just come back from a, a lovely two week holiday. I'm very brown. It's a shame you can't see the tan lines, but I've not had a chance to see this. Scott, I believe you've not had a chance to see this. I show. don't have quite the excuses you do, and still haven't seen it. <laughs> and so I'm gonna push it over to Andy. You have seen it, and what we thought we'd do is Andy talks about the film. We can also talk, and uh, Scott and I can throw in about the about Tarantino as a filmmaker and where he's going, and he's put himself up for talking about retirement and moving away from it. He's still got a Star Trek movie to write uh, before he goes for me. Um, tell us about it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is Tarantino's love letter to the era of film that influenced him. 
there's little elements throughout it that you just go, that's why he's obsessed with martial arts. That's why, because it's set at that end of the golden era of cinema. Uh, DiCaprio's playing Rick Dalton, a once respected star who's now consigned to guest appearances, usually as the villain or the heavy who gets killed off because that's his declining career. His stunt double with a sketchy past is played by Brad Pitt and that's Cliff Booth. And they are the prime focus of the story as it, the story follows Rick's attempt to become a name again. In the backdrop of that, there's the day in the life aspect of Sharon Tate played by marvellously by Margot Robbie. Um, who is Rick's next door neighbour, that he just can't find the courage to go and get acquainted with her and her husband, Roman Polanski. Now, many many mistakenly believed when this film was getting pitched and like, sold mm. that the film would be about Tate and the Manson family murderers. But no, that's never been Tarantino's intention. It's always been to use that as the backdrop to tell a story and just have this fantasy version of Sharon Tate like in the background of it throughout it. To say more on this would be spoilerific, so I'm I'm very cautious not to spoil things here because it, the, the way that the story all plays out is beautifully structured. Um, it uses Tarantino's little like flashbacks and forwards, which for the first 20 minutes, because he's not really done this for the past couple of films, when he's suddenly thrown himself back to like the, okay, we'll jump back and forwards like he did on Reservoir Dogs. Fiction it's a bit jarring, thing. but then you start to get to work out, oh, yeah, this was three days earlier. Oh, now we're back to the real time, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically every time that someone has a little memory of something, it's like a family guy cutaway. <laughs> <laughs> Except without Peter saying something daft. Suffice to say on this one that when Tarantino dismissed that one very carefully constructed attack on his representation of women with an I reject your hypothesis, having watched the film, I completely understand why he rejected that hypothesis. The much publicised low word count that Robbie has... I don't know why I did the speech marks because the guys who are listening can't actually <laughs> hear me do the speech marks. He did, marks. we can read the confirm. <laughs> it's actually part of the whole point of her character being here. We lowly cinema patrons who watched the big screen, we're watching Rick Dalton and thinking, wow, an actor at the end of his career. Oh, well, how are we supposed to feel sorry for him? Because, you know, he's had his great moments and all that. But she's supposed to be the character that people like Rick Dalton aspire to be. And so she's his mythical creature to like, oh, I can't, I, I could probably boost my career if I could just be a part of their circle. Everyone has that little bit level ahead. And so her day in the life is to show her doing a normal things because she's a fantasy character. We don't need to see her interact with the story. We don't need to see her like meddle with things. She's not a pr like provocateur. She's just there to showcase that actors and actresses were normal people as well. And this was an interesting time in Hollywood, and, and I can see why Tarrant, as you said earlier, it's, it's, it's that it's that that moment of of where Hollywood became something different. We were on the verge of the the, the end of the summer of love down to the Manson killings was was instrumental in sort of ending that that hippie hippie age. Not long afterwards, we got Roman Polanski, you know, doing you know Rosemary's Baby, Baby. Was around that time. You got Easy Rider coming through, which which changed how. Young people were seeing seeing that, and and my belief is from what I've read, and and it, I, if if I'm wrong, I, I apologise. But the characters are supposed to be Burt Reynolds and and Hal Needham, sort of in into a degree, uh, and Burt Reynolds reinvented himself from being he was in a series called Cheyenne, I believe, yeah, um, and then Deliverance again, which was almost a slightly counterculture thriller, uh, gave him the resurgence. He was third on the bill, even though he'd had this this TV. Uh, TV history and people like Steve McQueen were moving out into sort of doing more experimental films like 
the original Thomas Crown affair. So it was a period in Hollywood where uh, the old guard was certainly certainly changing, and um, uh, and, and the, the Manson killings as a as a as a shadow of that were one of the great. Uh, you know, it, people still talk about it now. Clearly, um, there's there's a couple of other films, the Manson films in in production right now. Some other ready ready for release. Matt Smith playing Charles Manson in one yeah. film, I've noticed. Uh, that it still it still holds the shadow to to how that particular period and though that age changed tremendously. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that the whole aspect of Rick's character being like a once big screen star who's done a TV series for five or six years and now gone into decline. You know, it, it does like link back to like the age of the like the big names with the names on screen. But then you got to the end of the 60s and into the 70s, it was less about the big names on screens. It was more about just individual films and, like, there was no real big stars. Yeah, the star system had started to break and, apart. And that's that what Tarantino was analysing here. Look back on Tarantino's career. Look on all his films. And you can see influences on each one of them, like where he's drawn things from, from, like, Chinese cinema, from Hong Kong action films, from, like, your Hollywood blockbusters of, like, the 60s and early 70s, etc., and this is the film where he really expresses his love. It's beautifully framed, beautifully shot. He really loves the whole industry that he set it around. His obsession with feet has to be brought up because this film, more than any of his films, has a lot of feet in it. Oh, he's doubled down. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's he's gone crazy with the foot fetish. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I recently rewatched all of his films, including like the ones that he just like wrote, like True Romance, etc., yeah. and also the ones that he was just like producer of or participated in. And while watching through them, seeing like how his obsession with feet got more and more through it. There's a two minute sequence in Kill Bill, for instance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this film has more feet than I ever needed to see in a two and a half hour period. <laughs> Um, I'd say that this is, a, I mean, this is a strong recommendation because I'd say that this is his strongest film since Pulp Fiction. That's good to know. I I fell off the Tarantino bandwagon. I think he's an interesting filmmaker. He's, he's always got an interesting voice. I think he became too Tarantino with uh, um, Bastards. I thought it was, he played, he almost homaged himself to that yeah. degree. It wasn't the film that I I went in to see, so I think maybe that was part of it. I was I was thought it was going to be a man on a mission film, and it really isn't. And I thought you know scenes of, of big dialogue scenes were just. It's a bit like J.K. Rowling. Uh, stay with me, guys. <laughs> J.K. Rowling, when she had an editor who could tell her no, don't write this and keep it lean, kept the stories tighter. When she was allowed to, which is a huge international success, she could write whatever she wanted, and, and no one would tell her. Stephen King had the same I thing. I completely agree. It's it's overindulgent. Yeah, it? and it's somebody wasn't to... around to tell Tarantino. Yeah. You know, like, you're wonderfully <laughs> loquacious, mate. Great scene, but you don't need Mike Myers turning up as a weird British general. But ten, yeah. more, <laughs> ten more minutes have passed since this scene could have ended. Yeah, the, the, the whole scene in, in uh, *Inglorious Bastards* of, of the uh, uh, of the game in the cellar in the yeah. German bar. Didn't progress the story. It's almost like a collection of short films that happen to be sequential, isn't it? (laughs) On that cellar scene, having recently rewatched it, I have to disagree. You see, I recently rewatched it and I disagree. Where does that leave us? In the Matrix. I I I didn't get it first time round, but when I watched it recently, I was drawn into that scene. It was the tension building of that scene. I just think it was the 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 rest of the like film had been bogged down by unnecessary sides. 
which maybe by the point of getting to that scene, it was like, oh, really? Just, just hurry it up now. And that might be why it didn't quite impact. But for me, that was the strongest scene aside from the opening farmhouse scene, mm. which I think is the most intense yes. like dialogue exchange yeah. that I've ever seen like on any Tarantino yeah, that film. Was, that was pure threat. You see, and, and I didn't get to see Hateful Eight and um, I just wasn't drawn to it. I'd like to have seen the 70 millimeter print of it, which, which was going around and unfortunately missed that, but wasn't drawn to uh, Hateful Eight. I, basically, after Glorious Bastards, I just... Uh, it's tough because if you had to rank uh, just pure gold Tarantino scenes, they'd all be up there and you'd think, oh, that must be one of his best films. But if I had to rate his films, I'd put it re- quite low down. <laughs> um, and do you do that with Tarantino? Do you rate scenes rather than you rate movies? Do you go, oh, the scene out of such and such was, you know, fantastic? There is a degree of that. I, I think even with like Kill Bill and stuff, you, yeah. you, your mind moments well rather yeah. than yeah. overall. I See, mean, Kill Bill... Volume one was more of a complete film for me than volume two, yeah. Uh, because it, it, it went down several rabbit holes of, of areas that we didn't need. I don't think you needed the whole flashback training sequences to last as long as it did, <laughs> but, <I'm, laughs> but he's an interesting voice, and I think you, you can always come back to he's, he's, a, he's a cinema voice. Uh, and it sounds from, from what, what you've just said, Andy, that it keeps, it keeps bringing it back to. It's a love of cinema every time. That's the guiding principle of, of all films. They are relatable. They come from somewhere that we recognise. Yeah. And he puts his own his own touch on it. Uh, I do know that he did have a... I, I shall name drop. I am slight friends with Russell Mackay, the film director. And I do know that at one point there was a, a vampire script going around that Russell Mackay was looking at that was a Tarantino one. And I think it was called... I think it was called Eight Weeks, if I remember correctly. Which would have been interesting, but um, if he does decide to retire, it'd be interesting to see what he does next. I would like him certainly to finish his Star Trek script because it would be nice to have that that cast come back and do one last film together. It'd be weird to retire on a Star Trek film, though, wouldn't it? Because he's always stuck by this ten I, film. I th- I think that I think his ten film that. thing is is ten films are the things that are his kind of idea and property. But he's also backtracked recently. I mean, I, I picked this up on an interview when he was saying, like, hey, he considers Kill Bill 1 and 2 as being, like, one film. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're not on the ninth film. We're on the yeah. eighth film. And he said, like, he'd, he's got an idea for a Kill Bill 3. So that would be part of that one film. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, yeah. that'll be... And I think he's going to use little get-out-of-jail clauses there. And then he'll turn around and say, well, Jackie Brown was adapted from another story. Someone yeah. else came up with yeah, that yeah. story. So that's not one of my films. He will make films as long as he's got an idea. He's not yeah. rushing to make films. He, he He's set himself this ambiguous 10 films yeah. idea. And, and it, it's a, that's purely down to he can see the decline in the use of actual film stock in the industry. And he doesn't want to make films if he can't use film stock. He he hates digital. He doesn't want to do it. And I think that's when, that's when he came out with his 10 films thing. He just basically said, well, there's only about another five or six years of like this going on. So... That should cover me until then. So we won't see his films on Netflix. As in film, like, who knows? <laughs> You'll see them on Netflix, but he has to be has to have shot them in um, yeah. actual thirty five mil or seventy mil stock. I think for a genuinely superstar household name director, I think his studio would let him film however he wanted, regardless of what the going standard is. So I, I don't know why he's. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh came back has had more comebacks now than Captain Scarlet so, yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's if he up. stops making films I would love him to continue writing and maybe produce TV series I think a Tarantino verse series exploring different eras 
has so much potential. Interesting. Well, that takes us around to our uh, wrapping it up, really. And I just want to go around the table, and we're going to do this every every episode now. Something neat that you've either seen, watched, ate, <laughs> podcasted, <laughs> or uh, uh, just thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, Andy, anything for us? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm going through a bit of a Douglas Adams phase. Um, Nothing wrong with that, sir. 42 th- is the th- answer. There was the recent news of... Um, a new TV adaptation of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which got me all excited. And so I went and listened to the radio drama and then read the book again and then watched the movie and then ordered the TV, BBC TV series Triple Box Set, working through all the extras. And I am in love with Douglas Adams' work again. Oh, absolutely marvellous. And I can't wait to see this um, new TV series. But in the meantime, I've just finished Restaurants at the End of the Universe, the book. So I'm now on to Life, the Universe and Everything, and then it's So Long and Thanks for All the Fish and Mostly Harmless. Uh, I still don't know whether I'm going to go for that fifth book that wasn't written by him. Uh, mm, uh, is it canon? Sixth book. It's, it's canon, but I just don't feel it. Um, I actually met Douglas Adams once. Oh. A long, long time ago. And I made a complete arse of myself. A story I, for another time. I did that with Terry Pratchett. <laughs> and another thing that I just want to mention is it's been going for a good few months now, but I have to extol the virtues of Dan Slott's writing on the Fantastic Four comic at the moment. It's great. It's it's fantastic. Yes. I, 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 I was well known for being vocal about my hatred of Dan Slott when he was covering Spider-Man and Dan Slott blocked me on Twitter um, when I dared to complain that his stories like weren't quite doing it for me. Didn't even link him in. So he searched for his name and then just blocked <laughs> me on Twitter. What a, wow. Um, however, when he took Fantastic Four, I was initially like, oh no, don't ruin that as well because Fantastic Four was my first Marvel love, first comics Loved him. Always been with me ever since. It appears that Dan Slott was introduced to like fanta- like comic books via Fantastic Four as well. And you can tell he loves these characters. There's a real family aspect. He's to it got again, the family. It? He's got the the jokey nature, the light humor, but the drama and the cosmic scale, and it's just fun. It's exactly what Fantastic Four should be. It's that family unit in weird, bizarre settings. And we finally got to see uh, Ben and Alicia get married. Yeah, it has been. It's been a really oh. cool run. Oh. And lovely art as well on it. Scott, anything for us? Anything neat? Um, I've been watching um, Harmon Quest, which is um, Dan Harmon of Community and Rick and Morty fame. It's kind of a spin-off of his Harmon Town podcast, where he found a guy called Spencer Crittington, I believe. Forgive me if I've butchered his name. Um, <laughs> where the committed about half an hour to an hour at the end of each podcast to play Dungeons and Dragons. So they've done a spin-off where they play something that's very similar to Dungeons and Dragons, but isn't Dungeons and Dragons wink wink copyright. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then it's sort of animated over. So it's like improv comedy playing Dungeons and Dragons with animation of their hijinks and adventures. It's really fun. Um, I I quite enjoy it. It's um, Where can we find it? Um, (laughs) <laughs> it's on a, I believe it's called VRV in America um, I, I've been finding it on this um, very legal cartoon website uh, we'll move on from uh, that, just in case um, I, I don't know where it's available in England but uh, I think it will be soon 
Uh, the new yeah. series of uh, Rick and Morty due. Uh, yes, season four, four. Very, very, very. And I watched Monster House again. I watched it with my uh, with my son. It's really good. Really. It. And it's really good. I didn't realize that Dan Hartman had written it. No, that I realized that. I can and now I now I know he wrote it. I can, you can see I, it. I can see it all over. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great it's, little gag. It's gadget. funny what gets past your peripheries sometimes, isn't it? As I just said, I've been on holiday. Uh, I had two weeks in the sun, and I decided that I was going to have a, a, a talking book, so I could sit around the pool uh, drinking cocktails and rather than read. Listen to a uh, talking book, and this ties into probably our next episode. Uh, so Audacity, which is the Amazon version of the talking book, uh, there Audible. Audible, sorry, Audible Audacity Z. Uh, we'll cut that. <laughs> Just cut that. I'm not going to go with that. Uh, so Audible, it's on Audible, uh, and I listened to it, Stephen King reading uh, by an American comedy writer called uh, comedy actor called Steve Weber. Uh, Steve Weber used to be in a series called Wings. He played Jack Torrance in Stephen King's version of, of The Shining for American TV. He's a good actor, but his reading of it is absolutely phenomenal. He, every time he opens his mouth in a different character, you hear a different character here. Uh, his, his playing of Pennywise was, is, is amazing. It's so beautifully read. And what I, I did notice that I didn't get when I was reading it, and I, I think I stopped reading it about halfway through, is how beautifully written that book is uh, Stephen King's prose for everything that we, we throw at Stephen King for, for slightly being overindulgent with his, with his storytelling. He is a master of prose, beautifully, beautifully written. And that really came through. It's marvelously structured as well, doing the like backwards and forwards in yeah. time aspect. I mean, I know the film has adapted it in a different manner and I think it works for the two for the linear of the version. Film. Yeah. Um, but in the book, it's like, it's that jumping to them as adults and then going back to the people that, Elements that defined where those adults are Absolutely. in their lives, backwards and forwards, marvellous structure. And it's so well read that you 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 get a sense of time, literally by the actor changing his voice. Uh, and uh, I'd like to hear him read more, especially more Stephen King. Uh, that's it for this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We hopefully will be talking about it, uh, chapter two. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Filmfile UK. You can also find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. And eventually, once we get it in the UK, Google Podcasts. We, You can't wait. You can't buy this sort of entertainment. And we're not even charging you for it. I mean, this is just generous. We're not. I've worked with my age. I've the false pretenses. <laughs> we'll see you again very, very soon. Bye.